About Empathy is a podcast that focuses on patient, caregiver, and healthcare provider experiences with serious illness. We are now in our third season. Thank you for listening. Week by week, we hope these engaging conversations inspire you to have empathic and compassionate interactions. I'm Dr. Dori Sakaraccia, and I'm here with my co-hosts. I'm Dr. Giovanna Siriani, and I'm Dr. Irene Yang. We are physicians working in palliative care and psychosocial oncology at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto. This podcast gives voice to the patient, caregiver, and healthcare provider experience. By reflecting on their stories, we hope to improve our practice and yours. The COVID-19 pandemic has hit everyone hard but those living in long-term care facilities have faced unprecedented circumstances. Long-term care residents were disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 in terms of illness and death. As cases multiplied, residents were isolated from the outside world. Stacey Greenberg is here today to tell us about her father, who lived with multiple sclerosis in a long-term care facility since 2014. During the pandemic, Stacy had limited contact with her father, and he was sadly isolated from his loved ones in his final days due to COVID-19 visitors and caregiver restrictions. Although he did not die of COVID-19, there were significant changes that impacted his daily life. Stacy, thank you so much for coming to share your story with us today. Can you tell us a bit about your father and how multiple sclerosis impacted your father's day-to-day functioning? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. My dad had multiple sclerosis for well over 30 years, diagnosed conclusively about 20 years ago. And over the time, he went downhill significantly, so that in his final few years when he was living in a long-term care home, he really didn't have any ability to walk. Over time, he lost the ability to use his left hand. He used his right hand with alternating success. Mm -hmm. And In his final few years, he was really losing the ability to swallow. So what that entailed was when he was eating food, there was a lot of choking, a lot of coughing. That said, my dad was the kind of person who was always happy. He was content with the simple pleasures in life, just to be able to watch a good movie on TV or to eat a good dessert that we brought him or even just to sit outside for a few minutes. He never complained, sometimes to his detriment when he was feeling sick, he never complained. And he never had a bad thing to say about anyone. So even though this disease really robbed him of his quality of life, he always wanted to be alive. He always wanted to engage with others. And he was content with his lot in life, which I think is is very impressive. Very. Can you tell us a little bit about how you stayed connected to your dad during the outbreak? And what were the protocols put in place by the facility? Absolutely. Uh, Unfortunately, there wasn't a lot of contact. My dad had a roommate who died of COVID-19. Okay. So he was moved rooms quite often. The facility had an uncontrolled outbreak of COVID-19. There were over 100 cases in total, and out of a facility of about 200, it's quite significant, both staff and patients. We weren't allowed to go see him, And they kept moving him his room because as additional cases popped up, you know, they would try and isolate the people who had COVID from the people who didn't. He never contracted COVID. But unfortunately, because they kept moving his room, they didn't hook up his TV or his telephone. Mm. So I was able to do video chats with him once a week. 
-hmm. They put a time limit of 30 minutes on, but because my dad was not able to really use his hands, loss of his throat control led to him not really being able to speak at any volume. It was about a five-minute call once a week, and me essentially speaking at him because I couldn't hear his responses. So nothing in person. We couldn't even really go to the window because they kept moving his rooms. So unfortunately, Dad, for almost four months, lay in the bed staring at the ceiling with no contact except for, you know, somebody to come in and feed him probably a few minutes a day or speaking to us about once a week. Can you tell us a little bit about at what point you and your family realized he was declining? Like, how did that happen? Unfortunately, there wasn't a lot of contact from the home in terms of his physical status and his mental status. So over the almost four months of COVID, nobody contacted us to tell us about his health with the exception of his swallowing. So my dad always loved a good meal. That was one of the things everybody knew about Erwin. And he always said when it was close to him needing a feeding tube that he would not want to live anymore. That was his stake in the sand. He would always want to be resuscitated. But if he got to the point where he couldn't enjoy his food, mm-hmm. he said no more. So I did get calls from the dietitian saying he was really having trouble eating. And we had talked about that in the past. He had always refused to go to minced food and thickened liquids. It was his quality of life, and that was his prerogative. Mm, But the dietician told me that he did accept thickened liquids and minced food over the course of COVID, but they didn't tell me how much weight he lost. And they didn't tell me really until the end that he was declining to eat. And after about three and a half months, We were allowed to go in and to see our family members. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had to do it outside. We were only allowed to go once a week for half an hour. We had to stay six feet away from them. I couldn't give him a hug. And when I saw him the first time, I was shocked at his condition. Mm. Both physically, he had lost all use of his left arm, the majority of use of his right arm. But what really scared me was the fact he lost a lot of weight because he didn't like the minced food, the thickened Mm. liquids. And he essentially stopped eating, and he was like a skeleton. But more than that, what shocked me was it was his cognitive decline. My dad was always cognitively well. When he was in pain, he had moments of cognitive flux. Uh, But he always knew who I was. He always made sense. When I saw him those two times outside, he really didn't. He really lost cognitive reasoning. None of that had been communicated by the home prior to seeing him. So for me, it was a big shock to see his physical and his cognitive decline. The first time I saw him, I went home and I cried. I curled up on the couch, put a blanket over my head, and really took the rest of the night to just be in a horrible mood because it wasn't communicated. Yeah. Only after that first visit where I was tremendously shocked did the home talked to me and suggest palliative care. Hmm. You tell us more about yeah. that. Sure. So I had seen him outside. I remember I had gone to give him a hug and the director of care at the home barked at me, stay six feet back. All I wanted to do was hug my dad because he hadn't been touched in almost four months. And yeah. I, th- I really think that's so crucial to us as human beings. And the wonderful head nurse came to me and asked me, would I consider palliative care for my dad? And I didn't know what that meant, Hmm. 
to me, palliative care was going to a hospice somewhere, was, you know, end of life, immediate dying. I didn't understand really what palliative care was about. Through some family connections, I had asked, you know, what is it about? And my mother-in-law, who had sought out the information for me, came back and said, hospital palliative care teams go in and work with the nursing homes to explain to family members how it would work. So for example, if my dad was having trouble swallowing and he went unconscious, I didn't understand how pain could be reduced because he couldn't take a pill. Right. And as far as I understood, they weren't doing intravenous pain-killing injections. Mm -hmm. So I didn't understand the nitty-gritty. And as somebody with a power of attorney over his medical care, I really wanted to understand for my own peace of mind what palliative care was about. And I asked the director of care to bring in a palliative care team, and she fought me tooth and nail. And I was asked, you know, why would you want something like that? Or we can do it in the home. And I did explain exactly what I said here, that... Essentially, I was looking for more information for my own peace of mind. Eventually, she threw up her hands and said, fine, we'll invite them in. But unfortunately, he passed away before we had the chance to do Mm. that. So I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about palliative care, especially to those of us who are not medically educated. And I think one of the biggest gaps in long-term care these days is the ability to bring up palliative care without fully explaining what it means. Hmm. Right. So they offered it to you, but then they really didn't explain it or help you to know what that looked like going forward, why they were offering it, what that meant. They said that my dad wouldn't benefit from any further trips to hospital. Now, with MS, you're not usually, you know, finally debilitated or or killed by the MS itself. It's usually some kind of infection, whether it's pneumonia, whether it's a bladder infection. So my dad would make frequent trips to the hospital because he had an infection. And because of his lack of immune system, he would go very septic, very fast. It would take over his whole body. But the trips to hospital were traumatic. He was in an unfamiliar situation, sometimes in and out of consciousness. He was in a place without his comforts of home, his TV, his phone. Whenever he was there, he would say, let's go home, let's go home. But I didn't understand how his health could be kept at an appropriate level or how his infections could be stopped through palliative care by not going to the hospital. So it sounds like they explained to you what should not be done or they advise you about interventions that you should not do but it doesn't sound like they talked about the active type of comfort care that comes with palliative care that that wasn't explained to you that that's what it sounds like and to tell you the truth i still don't really have a deep understanding of what that means Hmm. and that i think when you recommend to a family should we move into a palliative phase of care it behooves us to explain what that Mm -hmm. means and that's a pretty fulsome conversation one would hope to help you and your family so i can't imagine how difficult that must have been i'm still puzzled by the reluctance of the home to fully Mm -hmm. explain it i don't know if there are additional costs associated with bringing in a palliative care team I don't know if it would look poorly on the home. I wouldn't think it would. I would Mm. think it would look very well on them that they were providing additional family education. I consider myself educated. I am very fortunate that I have a lot of friends in the medical field who could explain it to me. And I went and I asked some of them questions. But for people who are a little bit Mm. less connected, 
I would think that it would be a very important step and something I could highly recommend to any of the nursing homes to put on their standards of care is to bring in a palliative care team whenever the subject is approached to help educate family members, mm. if yeah. only for the family member's own comfort. Mm. Stacy, can you tell us about how grieving for your father and mourning his loss, how that was impacted by COVID-19? I think there's a few parts to that. I was able to see my dad the day he died. Oh, that's good. They called me the morning that he was that he had declined significantly overnight. I was able to dress in full PPE when I got there within the hour, and they brought me into his room. Uh, they told me they thought he would die within the day. And I hugged him, and I had the chance to say goodbye. Mm. In the Jewish religion, we bury quickly. We bury within 24 hours, and right. then we sit shiva, mm. which is a period of mourning at home where your family and your friends come to visit you in your house, and they comfort you. And both the funeral and the period of shiva were impacted by COVID, sure. although not necessarily negatively. Mm. Oh. So we sat Shiva in the backyard. We had only two spots for people to come, socially distanced, about six feet away, sit on their chairs. We had hand sanitizer, the whole bit. But I feel that that was positive because I had the chance to talk about my dad in a one-to-one. Him being young and fun and having a ridiculous 1970s comb-over. So I feel that actually was a COVID positive that I had that one-to-one time. It was the months before his death that mm-hmm. I really felt bereft of contact with him. And mm-hmm. I think the lack of contact really made him go down quickly. I think you already mentioned it, but the gaps and blind spots of the long-term care facility were, if you could summarize them, what would you say? The staff on the ground, the PSWs, the nurses, even the admin staff of the home did everything possible to keep my dad in comfort with what they had. We know at the best of times, long-term care is underfunded, understaffed, but they really did their best to physically take care of him, feed him, help him. And I just wanted to give kudos to the long-term care staff for taking good care of him. They did absolutely the best with what they had. The gap to me really came with the ownership of the home. I still think the communication was very much lacking, both in terms of why something like this was spreading, why was it so hard to control, and what exactly they were doing to control it. Tell me about the PPE. Tell me about moving people around in their rooms. Tell me about ensuring the staff who are caring for the COVID patients are not sharing a lunchroom with the staff who are not caring for the COVID patients as they were at the beginning. Communicate, communicate early, communicate often, communicate far more than you ever thought you would need to do that'll put family members' minds at ease. So if there's anything that I could pass on to your listeners, Mm -hmm. it's communicate early and often because family members need that. Thank you. I think that's such an important message. We always finish our podcast with, what do you wish the healthcare system knew about your experience? If you could complete that statement, if only they knew. I mentioned communication, but I think the long-term care system is fundamentally broken. And, you know, these are our elders. These are the people with wisdom in society. And my dad wasn't old. He was only 68 years old. We need to treat them with respect. To me, respect is realizing that even if they have a host of medical issues, they're still a person. They're a person with hopes and dreams and likes and dislikes and personalities. And even if we're treating them right medically, 
Mm-hmm. We need to understand what they need as people. We need to understand that as humans, we need touch. We need hugs. We need words of comfort. We need people to help us. We need to recognize that these people are whole people and not just the checklist of their medical systems. That people are being treated just as their medical problems, not as who they are. And that's what we need to realize. Thank you. I think that's a great message for us. You're listening to About Empathy. We're going to take a short break to tell you about how the show is supported, and we'll be right back. The third season of About Empathy has been funded through donations to the palliative care team via the Sunnybrook Foundation. Sunnybrook is committed to patient engagement and care. By partnering with Sunnybrook, we hope that this podcast embeds family and patient experiences in all teaching and learning. To learn more about the education initiatives at Sunnybrook, visit sunnybrook.ca. About Empathy is recorded at Wellspring. Wellspring Cancer Support Foundation is a network of community-based support centers offering professionally-led programs and services to help people living with cancer and those who care for them. No referral is necessary, and Wellspring programs are offered free of charge. During the pandemic, all programs are available as online support groups, webinars, or as telephone-based supports via Well on the Web. Visit wellspring.ca to find a center location near you or to access national online programming. Welcome back to About Empathy. Well, Giovanna and Irene, I think that Stacy brought up a lot of amazing points during that discussion. One thing that really struck me was when she talked about the nursing home telling her it was time to go into palliative care. It sounded like what they were saying to her was your dad wouldn't be going to the hospital anymore, but she wasn't really given a sense of what palliative care is. And when you're going to talk about palliative care to a family, that should entail such a fulsome conversation, not just what we're not going to do anymore, but so much more of what that means and what we are going to do to keep your loved one comfortable. Of course, those were very crazy times in the nursing home, but it must have been so hard for the family not to know what this meant going into palliative care or being palliative Mm-hmm. if they said it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a, a message we keep trying to impress upon people. And it's not just the public. It's also like the healthcare system and healthcare professionals viewing palliative care as a passive thing yeah. rather mm-hmm. than an active, active. thing. Mm-hmm. I think that's an understanding that's missing out there is that comfort care is active care. I think people worry that if they transition to a palliative care unit, that they are ignored or forgotten. Mm -hmm. And that's not it at all. And I think it's very active care. It's interprofessional care. And I think people don't know that. Yes. I think another thing that Stacey's experience points to is how siloed our healthcare system is. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's similar in other areas of Canada, but Ontario, you know, long-term care homes, in some ways, you know, they are, again, very underfunded. So they're trying to do a lot with not enough. And the way that they're funded, they don't really get that much support from like home care or from other agencies. It seems so unlikely, but there are things I can get for patients who are dying at home that I cannot get for patients who are in long-term care homes. And it's through no fault of the long-term care homes. It's just the way that things are funded, which is so backwards because long-term care homes are the homes of so many of Mm -hmm. our society's frail and older people. 
That really speaks to the change in the system she talked about that was so necessary. Mm-hmm. Irene, do you have an example of, of a type of care that you could get for someone in the home setting if they needed it, but not necessarily in long-term care? Yeah, I think probably the most common situation that comes up is requiring a CAD pump. So CAD pump stands for, I always get this wrong, but continuous ambulatory drug delivery system. And it's essentially, we can deliver many drugs through it, but the most common thing we use in palliative care are opioids, such as morphine or hydromorphone for pain or shortness of breath, because the nurses need to be trained to use it. And it's not really you know, economically feasible for a long-term care home to always have a nurse on site who's trained in this. But when you have home care, you have a certain nursing agency that can dispatch to different areas of the city, then that becomes sort of more economically and practically feasible. But because there's this distinction between long-term care funding and home care funding, I can't get this kind of CAD pump for a patient in a long-term care home. And there's probably lots of other examples that are very similar. That's a great example. Yeah. The other thing that Stacy was talking about that really struck me was that over many months, her father was declining, that she didn't realize to what extent his health was declining and his functioning was declining, and that she got to spend so little time with him. And I don't think that situation is unique to Stacy mm-hmm. in During this time of COVID-19, I think all of us are seeing the patients and the families that we're providing care for, that their interactions, their in-person interactions are vastly decreased and even be non-existent. So Stacey had the opportunity, thankfully, to say goodbye to her father before he died. Others are not getting that opportunity or they're having to do that over a virtual means, over a telephone or over an iPad. That makes me incredibly sad And I think, Irene, you were speaking to that about, I think, the level of moral distress that you have as a care provider around how end-of-life support has changed. It's been such a challenge because you also feel as a physician, especially a palliative care physician, where you're called in to prognosticate and say, Hmm. how long do you think this patient's going to live for? And sometimes that's such a tough thing because they could slowly, slowly get better and you could look at a recovery over a period of weeks or months. But so many of our patients are so frail that you also wouldn't be surprised if they decompensated over the course of hours and, and, you know, died within 24 hours. And I've had a few situations where I was really on the fence. Do I try to advocate for family visits to come in? But every time you advocate for a visit, you kind of lessen your voice a little bit more the next time you're trying to get an exception to the visitor policy, right? Like, I could have visitor policies for all of my patients. They're all so frail, but that's not sustainable for the hospital in terms of ensuring this proper social distancing. And so there have been situations where patients died and their families have only been able to see them for an hour or two after not seeing them for many, many weeks. Mm -hmm. And and that really stays with you. Like that kind of distress really builds up over time Mm -hmm. because you feel like you made the wrong call and this family is going to have to live with that Mm -hmm. for you know, the rest of their lives. And I think the challenging part of that is you said you made the wrong call, but we all know, and it it would be helpful for people listening to know that determining how much time someone has left to live or their prognosis is exceedingly challenging and it's riddled with inaccuracy. Mm -hmm. And so to have that moral distress of feeling like you're trying to make an educated decision, but in a setting where you know those decisions are inherently flawed, that puts a lot of strain on the healthcare provider Definitely. Uh, to make that call. It's incredibly difficult. And the other thing that bothers me about it is that the visitor policy often speaks to having visitors when someone is very close to end of life, 
But often if people are very close to end of life, they are not conscious. Yes. They are not necessarily conscious and the family is there to say goodbye, but that person may not necessarily have those meaningful interactions. Yes, exactly. Right. exactly. Yes. I think the last point that Stacy mentioned, which I think bears repeating because it's a theme that comes up again and again in our interviews, is that communication is key. And then the other thing is remembering the patient as a person and not as a medical diagnosis. Because I think that as you go into practice, you remember that. But the longer that you're in practice, until you have something personal that happens to you, I think we all lose a little bit of that. And we all start to look at the medical illness and not so much the person. And so I'm always you know, happy to be reminded of that, especially during those times mm-hmm. where you're feeling like you're really burning out and you're just trying to you know, get through the day and you mm-hmm. just kind of want to deal with the issue and then move on with it. Yeah. But it makes your job so much more fulfilling when you do remember the people that you're treating. That's really the intent of this podcast and these conversations and hearing these stories mm-hmm. is to remind ourselves of that and to remind people who are listening of that. We hope the story that you heard today has inspired you to engage in compassionate, authentic, and empathic interactions. We'll be back next week with another conversation. Subscribe to About Empathy on Apple Podcasts or listen on our website, aboutempathy.com. When you subscribe and rate our podcast, it helps others find us. The episode will be added to your app when we publish. Please share our podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and health professionals. You can find the notes from today's episode and information about our show on the website. About Empathy is a Kickback Productions podcast hosted by Giovanna Siriani, Dori Sekaracha, and Irene Ying. Recorded and produced by Jackie Skinner with additional production and writing by Laura Takahashi. Music by Jerry Finn and Jackie Skinner. The podcast is recorded on-site at Wellspring and funded by the Sunnybrook Foundation at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre. Visit us at aboutempathy.com.